This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a physician assistant in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As primary care providers, we see viruses all the time. This can range from colds, a painful shingles outbreak, COVID-19, hospitalized RSV bronchiolitis, influenza, the list really goes on. And oftentimes, after a detailed physical exam, we tell our patients that the cause of their symptoms are viral and that things should improve in a couple of days to some weeks. However, as providers, we know that sometimes the symptoms of a viral infection can be a harbinger of more severe disease. In today's talk, we will be discussing a virus. Acute infection with this virus can present with fever, fatigue, myalgias, arthralgias, lymphadenopathy, sore throat, headache, diarrhea, weight loss, and rash. Any thoughts what we're talking about? That constellation of symptoms, especially when they persist for a long duration of time, can be representative of an acute HIV infection. It is estimated that globally 1.2 million people have HIV in the United States of America, and globally, it is reported that there are approximately 38.4 million people living with HIV. And since the beginning of the HIV epidemic, according to the World Health Organization, approximately 40.1 million people lost their lives to HIV. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mariam Mahmood. Mariam is an assistant professor of medicine and is our current chair of our HIV focus group at our Rochester campus. She holds clinical interest in HIV, STIs, transplant infectious disease, and immune-compromised hosts. She completed her medical training at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and completed her internal medicine residency at Reading Hospital, Pennsylvania. She then completed her infectious disease fellowship at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mariam. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate the ability to talk today. Also, we're joined today by Dr. Cesar Gonzalez. Cesar is an assistant professor of both psychology and family medicine and is board certified in clinical psychology and serves as the clinical director of our transgender and intersex specialty care clinic. He completed his research and clinical fellowship program focused on human sexuality at the University of Minnesota, where he trained in areas of transgender health, sex and relationship therapy, and the treatment of problematic sexual behaviors. Thank you for joining us today, Cesar. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So to start us off here, Miriam, I'm going to talk to you. Can you just familiarize us why this virus is so different from all of the other viruses we encounter in our practice? Do you mind just touching how does this harness the ability to progress to, to AIDS? So yeah, Josh, thanks for the introduction. Nicely outlined that HIV is a bit of a unique virus amongst the things that we commonly encounter. And a big part of this is HIV's ability to establish latency within the body, right? So this latent viral reservoir is really why HIV is such a tricky one. And also our immune system's limited ability to control HIV as a virus. So if we take a step back and think about how we acquire HIV, we can look at when the HIV virus penetrates in the mucosal surfaces. So the vast majority of HIV is transmitted sexually. So the initial penetration of the genital mucosa, it then attaches to a, usually a dendritic cell, a macrophage or a CD4 containing cell within the submucosa, typically genital or otherwise. And then that dendritic cell, which then has the HIV virus inside it, goes to your regional lymph nodes. And typically you can find it in the regional lymph nodes about two days after HIV exposure. And then in the blood, about five days after HIV exposure. So the key with HIV is that once it gets to the regional lymph nodes, and especially once it gets to the blood and then disseminates into organs like brain, spleen, the rest of your lymphoreticular system, your gastrointestinal lymph tissue, it's impossible to eradicate from your body at that point in time. The reason for this is really because part of its life cycle, it integrates into the host DNA. Part of this is that 
one bit of HIV will go off and keep replicating, keep destroying CD4 T cells. But the other population of HIV will remain integrated into host cells within its DNA and be in this latent stage, and it can evade your immune system for years within this stage. So this is why once it establishes that latent viral reservoir, it's impossible to eradicate. But it's still churning and killing CD4 T cells along the along years, right? And right. eventually, the more CD4 T cell destruction you get over years, you get to a level where you get opportunistic infections, HIV-related illnesses, and then AIDS-defining illnesses, depending on how much immune function is affected over years. And you mentioned that CD4 count. For those of us not the most brushed up on our immunology, do you mind just commenting quick on what is a CD4 T cell and how this relates to someone's immune system? So I am also not an immunologist. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you that HIV requires two co-receptors. So if we go back to school here a little bit, back to a little bit of basic virology, HIV to get inside a T cell or inside any kind of immune cell needs to bind to a receptor. And the one receptor on the immune cell that matters is the CD4 receptor. So this is most commonly found on T cells, T lymphocyte cells, which are an immune cell. Mm. And then the HIV also needs a co-receptor to bind and then get inside the cell. Because it specifically binds to these kind of CD4 T cells or T lymphocytes, it's specific for these. And that's why you can follow the CD4 cell count for people living with HIV to track immune function. So CD4 T cells are really important in controlling infections like pneumocystis, pneumococcal infection, mycobacterial infections, fungal infections. So you see this common theme in that these are the infections that tend to affect people living with HIV AIDS if their immune function is compromised further. For other people who don't have HIV, this is not a great measure of immune function, right? Because HIV is specifically containing these CD4-specific T cells, we can use it as a good marker. For other people, if they're having issues with immune function, you should probably check an HIV screen, but not a CD4 (laughs) count. Good clarifier there. And with this darn virus, what are some things that we should have our ears tuned up for when, when we counsel our patients? How does someone actually contract this? There's different sites of action and different ways for a virus to enter our bodies, our nose, our mouth, genital region. What are all the ways that a patient can actually contract this virus? Yeah, that's a great question. And there is some misinformation around how people can get HIV. So it's important to clarify. In the U.S. and globally, the most common method of getting HIV is through sex, either through heterosexual or sex with same-sex partners. This is the most common method. Other exposures like bloodborne exposures or body fluid exposures are certainly ways that you can get it. People who mm. inject drugs are also at risk for it. But acquiring HIV from body fluids on a surface just doesn't happen. So this is important to clarify. People who think you can get HIV from a toilet seat or from a surface, this is just not something that's true or has ever been shown to happen. From sex, for sure. So we know that depending on the HIV status of your partner, whether their own treatment, whether their viral load is controlled, what kind of sex you're having, all of those input into what your actual risk from sex is, from blood exposure. So if we go way back to like the 1980s and 1990s, before we had good treatment, when people had uncontrolled HIV with high viral loads, if you had a blood transfusion from someone with HIV in that context, you had a nine out of 10 chance of getting HIV, Mm. which is why from the people who got blood products, you know, the hemophiliacs, et cetera, so many of those pre-ART 
and pre-ability to screen for HIV effectively in blood products, so many of those individuals ended up with HIV. Hmm. And so is, is blood the main transmitter here? Like when you say it's sexually transmitted, is it blood or can semen or vaginal yeah. secretions also transmit? So, so blood is a big one. So blood for sure. But other sure. body fluids that can transmit HIV are vaginal fluids, rectal fluids, semen, pre-ejaculate, breast milk. So those can all transmit HIV. Miriam, without getting too graphic here, but for our viewers and our, and our audience, when you say about breast milk, vaginal fluids, semen, how does one have to be exposed to contract HIV to those things? Like if someone is performing oral sex on all those fluids, can that transmit HIV? So from oral sex specifically, honestly, unlikely. You would really have to have a good mucosal break in the oral mucosa to have that happen. It can happen, but sure. the higher risk is from insertive penile vaginal, receptive penile vaginal, insertive anal or receptive anal intercourse. And does it matter with the amount of the virus within that fluid as well, I presume? Yeah, for sure. So again, uncontrolled HIV, higher risk. We know that people who have other STIs that can lead to genital ulcers, for instance, mm -hmm. are higher risk because your mucosal surface is then compromised so that more HIV virus can get in. But it really is a lot of factors, right? Like if right. your partner is on treatment and they're HIV positive and their viral load is controlled, then even with higher risk sex acts, your risk of transmission is pretty low. And we look at people's control, I believe, at Q3 months, would you agree that's the kind of the recommendation for looking at their CD4 and things? Yeah, so the, it, the national guidelines would suggest that HIV viral load should be checked at least every three months for the first two years of starting in care or re-engaging in care. Sure. And after that, depending on your control, we can spread it out a bit more to six months usually. Theoretically, so say someone's on treatment, they're controlled, and they because human error, we, we forget our medicine for a couple of days. In those days of forgetting, and even though they're controlled, is that a high risk time to transmit? Or is it because they're so suppressed that that's still unlikely in that situation, even yeah. if it's just like a day or two of missing it? You know, that's a great question. I think it depends really on what antiretroviral regimen you're on. Sure. So right now, the first line recommended regimens are really based around a specific class of antiretrovirals, the integrase strand transfer inhibitors or INSTEs. These are really potent, really well tolerated, and not to get into the nitty gritty of antiretrovirals, but they are super robust. We can get people virologically controlled within four to six weeks, typically, or at least mm -hmm. substantially lowered in terms of their viral load. So missing a couple of doses of these probably doesn't really impact if you've otherwise been consistently controlled. So that's important, but we always recommend good adherence because with HIV, anytime you miss a dose or skip a dose, you have the potential to select out for resistant virus. HIV is a virus that likes to develop resistance. It's very error prone, can make a lot of mutations happen if you don't keep it consistently controlled. So don't miss a dose. It's <laughs> probably not the end of the world with our current regimens if you do. Sure. Well, thank you. And yeah. one more question on the transmission. It's mostly transmitted through sex, but say there's a big puddle of blood somewhere or a big puddle of semen or breast milk and that person is untreated, can that virus lie dormant in that bodily fluid? And if so, how long is how long you think? Yeah, probably not, to be honest. The lab studies where they put a lot of HIV virus, a lot of concentrated HIV virus, when they did those studies, they showed that the virus could only survive maybe a few hours in a viable sense outside of the body. Okay. And that was in like hugely concentrated amounts in breast milk or in vaginal fluids or semen. That amount is much, much less, even in blood. 
So your chances of being exposed to it in the, the brief period that it's viable outside the body is pretty low. Contrast, hep B, super infectious, super transmissible, can last on surfaces for up to a week and still be viable and transmissible. So get your hep B vaccine. Good. Good plug in there. And would you say, Mariam, my introduction of HIV contracting it, would those be the symptoms that you see in your practice of an acute HIV infection? Yeah, those are exactly right. Awesome. Uh, so sometimes it's like this like mononucleosis syndrome is the classic description. Sure. So very much as you described, and people don't recognize it typically when it happens unless you know you've had an exposure and you're cognizant aware to like connect the dots there. But most people either don't recognize it or have minimal symptoms or don't have symptoms. And so Mm -hmm. don't really connect that to acute HIV infection. So I think it kind of, Gary, as, as we know what this leads to, just question to help connect the dots for our patients. They have a possible exposure. Roughly how long would it take for somebody to develop symptoms after being exposed to a sufficient viral load of this virus? That's a good question. So probably within days to weeks, because it's really a reflection of a rapidly increasing viral load, rapid destruction of CD4 cells. So typically days to weeks after exposure is when you'll start to get that acute retroviral syndrome. One of the things I teach on when I have students is you can never say always or, you know, anything. That's exactly right. (laughs) Typically. Right. Yeah. Often. Yeah. In this setting, if someone's exposed, I'm I'm assuming not everyone always mounts symptoms shortly Mm -hmm. after. Is that correct? Okay. 100% correct. Yeah. So data would say that somewhere between 30 to 60% of people are asymptomatic and never get that acute retroviral syndrome. They got it. They don't recognize it because it may be mild or minimally symptomatic. So for sure, not everyone gets it. But sometimes sure. after you diagnose someone and you go back and talk to them and think, where could you have gotten this from? Then they'll remember mm-hmm. a specific exposure and they'll say, oh, maybe I had a bit of a cold or flu-like illness around this time after this exposure. And then they'll sort of connect the dots that way. Now, 30 to 60% are asymptomatic. That's quite high. And do you think that's why it's a grade A recommendation from our USPSTF for everyone to have HIV screening for their health maintenance tasks, you think? Yeah, so that's a good part of it. There's a lot of other reasons that that recommendation was made, right? So one is that we estimate that about 15% of people living with HIV in the U.S. don't know about their status. And this is a group that has the potential to continue to transmit HIV through the community. We also know that if we diagnose people earlier and start people earlier on antiretroviral therapy, we improve their outcomes. We reduce morbidity, we reduce mortality. And in that group of people that are diagnosed earlier and treated earlier, They have a lifespan that is nearly equivalent to those without HIV. So this is key here. In the U.S., Mm -hmm. in resource-rich settings, we can substantially improve the quality of life of people living with HIV if we diagnose them earlier, ideally when they're asymptomatic during routine screening, and if we get them engaged in care and retained in care. We decrease the number of people who are presenting with advanced immune compromise and AIDS and those sort of opportunistic infections that can be very serious if we do this as well. And can you clarify, Miriam, the screen that we do for routine health maintenance, I believe, is different than if we're worried about, hey, I think I was just exposed to HIV. How is that testing different for those two scenarios? Yeah, so there's two broad buckets of HIV testing, right? So there's your HIV screens, which the lab test or the blood draw test that we most centers are using is the fourth generation HIV screen. This consists of an HIV antibody test and an HIV antigen test, so a surface marker on the HIV variant itself. The other big testing category is HIV viral load or nucleic acid or RNA-based testing. Mm. 
So for screening recommendations, we should use HIV screens, which are typically an antigen and antibody combination. Mm. For acute or recent infection or to monitor response to therapy, we use the HIV RNA or viral load, which tells us how much virus is in the blood. Well, and Caesar, interested in hearing from you here. I don't know what you see in your practice in this respect, but sometimes patients are in these very happy marriages and they're told, hey, I need to get, you need to get an HIV screen once in your lifetime, as well as a hepatitis C screen. Is there anything that you say to these people or say the why behind what we're doing, what we're doing by chance? Absolutely. Especially when individuals are starting off in a relationship, the idea of, of establishing mutual trust and socializing to, to be very transparent in the relationship and have it be a descriptor of a healthy relationship can really benefit the couple as a whole. So I do make that recommendation and for couples and really focusing in on the risk factor as opposed to the identity is, re is really key. We have individuals who have multiple sexual partners and their safe sex practices aren't consistent, then when I would really reinforce that a little bit more. I also really reinforce it in terms of just engaging in, in health maintenance and working with their primary care physician to make sure that they're identifying some of the conditions that can really have significant impacts if left untreated. Miriam, question on that topic. So say we have someone who's concerned about their health. They just had a, like a risky sexual exposure. They're asymptomatic. They're just trying to be good about their health and make sure that everything is clean. And say that they were just concerned about the sex that was unprotected that they had a couple weeks ago. What would be the right test to order in that situation? Yeah. Like, should we be getting expensive viral load tests or should we be getting the traditional fourth gen yeah. test or what, what's a good time? Yeah. I want to just, just add on to something Cesar said, if I can, for a sure, moment. Sure, please. So he please. brought up a great point, right? In that we should screen people. We should integrate it into routine healthcare. Big part of this is that in the studies that supported U equals U, so undetectable is untransmittable. So people who are controlled can't transmit HIV is that HIV infections did occur in a small amount, but those were genetically unlinked to the partner. So sex outside of those relationships is method of transmission. So having your partner be controlled if they are seropositive for HIV doesn't mean that you have no risk because you may have other exposures outside that relationship. Okay. As individuals, we're also not good at recognizing risk. So there's a lot of data that supports that people aren't great at recognizing their risk factors for HIV acquisition. Mm -mm. When we look at their objective risks and what they think are risks, they don't match up sometimes. This is another big reason for screening. Also, yeah. as providers, we're kind of rubbish at screening and assessing risk and doing all that, right? So we're not good at taking the time to be like, what are these risks? We don't want to ask awkward <laughs> questions. Right. So universal screening is really the way to go here. <laughs> but I think your question here is important yeah. too about what to do after what you think is a higher risk exposure or if you're worried after having sex with someone that maybe you don't know that well or in retrospect get concerned about. So two weeks out, the right test to get would be the HIV screen and the HIV RNA. Both. Both. Yeah. If you're four weeks out or six weeks out, then an HIV screen is fine. For okay. all HIV antigen antibody-based tests, screening tests, there's a window period to when they become positive. Hmm. For the fourth generation antigen antibody screens, that window period is usually about two-ish weeks. For other like rapid care HIV tests that may be like a cheek swab or a finger prick, that window period may be longer. So. Hmm just to keep that in mind, that different assays have different window periods. But if it's a recent exposure, then get both. 
And when somebody does get diagnosed with this new HIV diagnosis, that's a really, at this present day and age, I imagine it's still giving bad news. Like you were always taught how to give bad news to our patients. And this is something that I think a lot of patients would perceive as, you know, bad news, because as of right now, there's no permanent cure, but it's really, really, really treatable in today's modern era. What would your experience be, would you say, and how this affects these kind of patients as a new diagnosis or just lifelong from a psychological perspective? Absolutely. So the the number one piece is around shame and stigma. Individuals have a hard time in terms of realizing, okay, gosh, how am I going to communicate this to others? What's the stigma going to be about me? Oftentimes, it also depends on the health literacy of the individual in terms of how that might impact future relationships. So if, yeah. if they don't understand in terms of how HIV is transmitted, they might socially isolate because they might believe incorrectly that HIV is transmitted through sharing eating utensils. And if therefore they're in a communal setting that they don't want to pass HIV. And so health literacy is really, really important and making sure that we're providing that education around HIV. The other component is around disclosure. So there's a lot of, because of the stigma, there's also a lot of difficulties with disclosure because Mm. if someone finds out or if they know, are they going to reject me? And does that mean for me? And so that is a big deal. And there are state laws across the nation that really also address this in particular. There are laws around intentionally infecting someone that if you, especially if you have HIV, but again, that brings up the idea of just the stigma around the topic and how that impacts the individual. From there, we can also discuss the the topic on the effects on depression and anxiety, and that is also elevated as well in the population. With that support, there is nothing that the individual really can't cope with, especially when you have someone one-on-one and you're talking about the initial HIV diagnosis. Um, Because again, that stigma is significant. And it also does have the opportunity to really impact family health too, regards to to how do I communicate this to my kids? Or how is this going to then come back to me in terms of my own identity? Am I going to be labeled a certain way or not? And, you know, there are individuals that that really, again, do isolate because of the diagnosis. And and just know that there are groups out there. There are support groups of individuals who are initially diagnosed whom you can reach out to and learn from their experiences. I think that's really critical to understand is that there is support out there. Good points there, Caesar. It's nice to always let our patients know about their kind of support groups and make sure that we can support them both medically and psychologically through these kind of times. So no, totally agree. I think that kind of points to how troubling this can be for an individual and really the importance of prevention. And Mariam, what would you say about our pre-exposure prophylaxis medicines? Is this something that's effective? Does this really work well for our patients? HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP has been a real game changer. We've had oral PrEP medications available for about a decade or so. They are highly effective, right? So when we look at the clinical trials where everything is rigorous and controlled and people are highly motivated, if you had detectable blood levels on oral PrEP, either with Truvada, the tenofovir disoproxyl emtricitabine product, or Descovi, the tenofovir alafenamide emtricitabine product, your rates of protection against HIV were 90 to 95%. So highly effective if you took it and had detectable blood levels. In the real world, people aren't great about taking medications consistently. So real world efficacy is lower for oral PrEP. What's been the real shift is the potential for injectable long acting PrEP. So more recently, cabotegravir, which goes by the brand name Apertude in the US, 
was approved and its performance in the clinical trials is stellar. Better than oral PrEP, the clinical trials were stopped early because it was so superior. Wow. So really highly effective, maybe because of its biologic function, also because it doesn't depend on adherence. So if you turn up every two months, get your PrEP shot, you're very well protected against acquiring HIV. So That's awesome. And when really did that get approved? Any pretty recent? I feel like that was about a year ago, actually. Okay. Is that the direction that we're gearing our patients towards, you think? Like, let's let's move yeah. this way? If you're willing to come in every two months, because right now it can't be self-administered. It's an intramuscular injection into the buttock. It's a couple of cc's, so pretty hard to administer to yourself. So right now it's approved for clinic administration only. But if you're willing to come in for that every two months, then 100% that's the way we're going, right? It takes adherence out. It takes having to remember to take a pill every day out of the equation, so it's really effective. And there's also other long-acting PrEP methods that are in clinical trials right now that are highly promising, maybe subcutaneous implants, maybe every six-month administration. So really promising as part of HIV prevention and reducing ongoing transmission of HIV in our communities. Love to hear about these advances. And people who are not yet on PrEP, but they think they were exposed to HIV there's that post-exposure prophylaxis. So how does that work for our clinicians and our patients? Do you mind talking on that? For sure, yeah. So post-exposure prophylaxis has been around for a while for both occupational and non-occupational. As physicians and providers, we're probably used to the occupational version. Right. We're after a needle stick. We're calling our occupational health colleagues and talking through all of that. If we look at the non-occupational for this part, it's either if you had a blood and body fluid exposure or sexual exposure. And with either occupational or non-occupational, you have a window to get to PEP in which you can still be protected against HIV. And that window is really 72 hours. After 72, 72 hours, PEP isn't going to work for you based on a lot of real life data, but also based on the biology of the virus itself. And we know this from, we don't have to go into the details, but immune immunodeficiency or SIV studies and macaque that show that earlier you start PEP, the more effective it's going to be. After 72 hours, the virus established that latent period that we talked about, that latent reservoir. And then mm -hmm. after that, you can't eradicate it. So really, you have a 72-hour window. The sooner you can get started on PEP, the better. But after that three days, it's probably of low utility. Are there any major side effects to PEP? Is there just one medicine or is there multiple? Or Yeah, so PrEP we talked about is really two HIV medicines co-formulated in one pill. So in the U.S., it's Truvada or it's generic equivalent, two HIV medicines, or Descovy, again, two medicines, HIV medicines in one pill. For post-exposure prophylaxis, we use three HIV medicines. Hmm. So it's Truvada, Tenofovir, Emtricitabine, and then we use a third one, typically Dolutegravir or Raltegravir. Hmm. We know that there's been either a definite HIV exposure or a high risk for HIV exposure. We think that three-drug combination is going to be more effective, and that's also from sort of clinical and animal studies. So that is what we use for 28 days. The interesting thing is that people who are on PrEP, while initially they have some GI upset, headaches, other symptoms, typically get used to it or don't have a lot of symptoms after the first few weeks of starting PrEP. For PEP, a lot of people seem intolerant of it, like they have a lot of real marked symptoms, headaches, GI upset, and some people can't tolerate it. So it's kind of a different there. And maybe Cesar is better positioned to answer why that the psychological distress of an exposure may contribute to symptoms there in that group. But we for yeah. sure notice it in our post-exposure prophylaxis a lot in clinic here. Yeah, Cesar, do you see that topic come up at all where people think they were exposed and they want to be on PEP right away just, just to be safe kind of a deal? Yeah, and this is generally with individuals that tend to have a higher anxiety 
baseline. So individuals with, for example, illness, anxiety are hyper vigilant to germs, infections, have health concerns. So we generally see that be primary influencer is that initial baseline level of anxiety. The other piece is also around the fear of well, how is this going to impact my my family? This, I mean, it has significant consequences, but generally it is that fear of illness anxiety, which is really significant. right. So Marion, thank you so much, Caesar, for mentioning everything leading up to this in terms of prevention of acquiring the virus itself. Now, someone who has the virus and we're treating them with conventional medicines, in terms of a primary care perspective from screenings, I think it's worthwhile to mention the topic of anal path. Primary care providers, we do, I think, pelvic exams very well from our our female patients and cervical paps quite often to prevent cervical cancer screenings. I think the knowledge gap is this topic of anal paps. And as it relates to someone who has HIV, should we be doing this more? Where is the field leading us in terms of preventing anal cancers? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Josh. The knowledge gap persists even for us. So (laughs) this knowledge gap is being filled quickly but it's still really there. We know that people living with HIV, in particular, men who have sex with men are at higher risk of anal cancer. And we're just now starting to learn how best to screen people and how best to refer people. And by no means is this clarified, right? We don't have as crisp an algorithm as we do for cervical cancer screening or cervical cancer screening in this country. It's not there, but the most recent recommendations are helpful in that both the American Academy of HIV Medicine and the CDC recommend some form of anal cancer screening for people at higher risk. So that includes people living with HIV. Men who have sex with men living with HIV are the highest risk group. Men who have sex with women living with HIV are also at risk, even if they directly have never reported anal sex. And women living with HIV are also an underrecognized group who are at risk here. How we screen them, how often we screen them is really very institutional dependent, depending on what resources you have, depending on who can do the screening, what lab methods you have available. A lot of institutions probably have anal cytology testing Mm -hmm. as their first line go-to, which is reasonable. It's decently sensitive, maybe somewhere between like 50 to 60%, depending on which study you look at. So it's some pretty good data behind it, but we still don't know how often to do it. In our practice, we will typically screen people at least annually, people living with HIV, I should say, or we'll offer it to them, many decline. (laughs) And we'll say, if you have an abnormal cytology, then we refer you for high-resolution anoscopy or examination under anesthesia with colorectal. Our testing is actually a cytology plus high-risk HPV dual co-test. So if they have high-risk HPV without cytologic changes, then we'll repeat the test every six to 12 months, typically every 12 months. And if they have cytologic changes, then we'll refer them on because high-resolution anoscopy or examination under anesthesia with colorectal is more sensitive than cytology for detecting high-grade changes there. So that's really the key. And Miriam, just for technique question, is that yeah. you just using like an endocervical brush or is there a special anal For anal paps, endocervical brushes aren't the recommended method for comfort Mm. reasons. So what's recommended is really the just using like a plastic or a synthetic material swab that's moistened lightly and then inserting into the anal canal like three to six centimeters and then just sort of gently withdrawing and picking Mm. up cells that way. And then you sort of swish it into your side of fluid the same as you would for a cervical pap. So no special need for a special like Optima swab or anything, just get a regular cotton swab, saline. Yep, because then you're just going to swish it and discard the swab itself. So you just need to send the cell material itself. Aptima swabs, though, for pharyngeal and anal gonorrhea chlamydia, you should definitely use those. (laughs) Otherwise, the lab will reject you. 
Good plug. <laughs> and just some final thoughts here, Miriam. From a primary care provider standpoint, what do you think it's imperative for the average primary care provider out there to know in regards to HIV? What do you think we could be doing better? I think screening is big. People think that they live in a population that's not at risk. They think the person they're caring for isn't at risk. But we're not good at estimating risk. People aren't good at reporting or recognizing risk. So screen everyone. Talk to people about whether they think they would benefit from PrEP. And if they think they would, then offer them PrEP. If you're not comfortable with it, then refer them to someone who can give them PrEP. So these are key here. If they have HIV, get them engaged in care and keep them in care, right? Yeah. So these are important. From a primary care perspective, we have an HIV aging population in the U.S. and we're going to need increasing help from our <laughs> internal medicine primary care colleagues managing sort of that comorbidities related to HIV, even with well-controlled HIV. So... Awesome. Anyone's interested. And Caesar, how about you? Any final remarks you think that we can have as a takeaway from our primary care providers caring for the patient with or without HIV? Absolutely. I think, you know, having those conversations about HIV and having the the education and also not making assumptions about whether HIV prep is acceptable to certain populations. We know, for example, that amongst trans and gender diverse people, HIV PrEP is actually highly acceptable to the population and they're very much willing to engage in HIV PrEP. So just being aware of those assumptions that we make and, and making sure that we offer education and treatment options and prevention to everyone. Good. I totally agree. These are not good to make assumptions and really important, I think, to make our medical offices, medical homes and try to make people feel comfortable coming and sharing their experiences with us so we can best treat them the best way possible. So totally agree with you. Thank you so much for our listeners. We've been talking about HIV with Dr. Mahmood and Dr. Gonzalez from our Mayo Clinic Rochester campus. Miriam and Caesar, thank you both so, so, so much for this education and taking the time from your days to share this with us and our viewers. If you have enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. Until next time, this is Josh Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Have a great day, everybody.